Let's get motivated. Ladies and gentlemen, may I have your attention, please? This is the Kenny James Show. Direct and in full effect. Visit KennyJToday.com. Hey, yo, guys. Welcome to the Kenny James Show. This is another episode of Unfiltered. I got a show on today with a really special friend of mine on the line. We're going to talk about some real deep stuff here today. But first, take a listen. Chris, better known as Mountain Mike, has worn many faces by the age of 16. His biological father murdered in cold blood. Chris was also sexually assaulted multiple times by his choir director from a local community church. His way of dealing with his trauma was gaining weight to make himself as undesirable as possible. But life wasn't done for Chris just yet. Hiking became his new normal, his strength, his fortitude to muster the courage to face another day. Chris also helps others face their traumas too. With a warm welcome to the Kenny James Show, Welcome, Chris, also known as Mountain Mike. Hey, Kenny. <laughs> okay. This music, man. <laughs> it's a bop. It's a bop. I must call out the elephant in the room. <laughs> we started the recording uh, just a few minutes ago, and I realized that I wasn't really recording. <laughs> so we're going to start this shit all over again. Welcome to the show, Chris, and thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me again, Kenny. <laughs> <laughs> you're very welcome. Back like I never hey, look, left. You're the first guest that's been on the show twice in one day. You know, legendary. <laughs> uh, more importantly, I do want to have you on the show. When they hear the message or they hear the story about what it is that you've experienced, I think that that's very palpable and it can definitely change and affect lives. Explain to people what your profession is. My name is Chris Graves, but I go by Mountain Mike as a microphone. Um, by day, I am a TV marketing analytic manager and by every other time of the day outside of work. I'm a hiker. I recently started a hiking travel business where I plan and coordinate destination hiking trips. Um, and that's called Destination HL. The HL stands for Hike Life. And um, what I do is I've utilized hiking uh, along my journey through life. It had so many wonderful effects and has gotten me to where I'm at today. I just want to share pieces of that with everyone. Um, and the best way I know how to do that is actually getting people to come on hikes with me. Um, so that's what I do. Um, I also lead local hike called Trap Hikes, which uh, I call them the most lit group hike you've ever been on. <laughs> hey. uh, you know, I, I bring out, I have speakers with me. We have music going. I have a really cool playlist. And then also, too, one of the things that I incorporate is some aspects of, like, any type of topics to help, you know, conversation along on the hike. Um, I'll present a piece on the imposter syndrome and explaining that to the group, posing a question mm -hmm. to the group and allow that to inform and, and inspire dialogue throughout the hike. 
great. Great. So I want to start, like, I want to kind of dive in really quick, just so we can get on the topic of how you started uh, really engaging with nature and, and hiking and really kind of like seeing this as, you know, a future and something that you can really build a business off of that not only is something that is considered to be part of health and wellness, but also something that is very therapeutic for you just in general. Give us a, a little insight about why it is that you started hiking and, and the information behind that. So I first got my start, my first time I started hiking as a form of cardio to lose weight uh, in college. I was I was bullied in college and about my weight and I wasn't used to like working out, like going, you know, running on a treadmill because mm-hmm. growing up I had played sports. Uh, so like I found hiking and it was not only was it therapeutic, but it was a great way to like get in shape and lose weight. And that weight, it wasn't just necessarily like I went to college and I just put on, you know, the freshman 15. It actually was subconsciously I had put on trauma weight is what I like to call it when I got to college because when I was in high school, I was sexually abused by my choir director. And I felt that the, basically the abuse that came on was because of the way that I looked. Growing up, I matured pretty quickly. I looked like a man at the age of like 13. <laughs> um, so I like subconsciously it was like I didn't want to feel desirable. So yeah. I just overly indulged in with the dining hall uh, food. I went to UCLA who has like the best food. <laughs> they do. Yeah. I was eating, you know, having and full omelets for breakfast and tons of bacon and stuff and then you know lunch and always having a dessert with like they had these hot fudge brownies um that's how i got my start hiking uh was literally it was a way for me to lose weight uh, my trauma weight and now you mentioned that um this is trauma weight so we can start to use that as the term to describe literally what happened to you when you said that you were sexually assaulted by your choir director take us back to how this all started my biological father was murdered when I was two years old. And one, I have no memory of, of him, but I look exactly like him, um, which is quite scary. <laughs> and it, it trips me out, especially mm-hmm. being around family and the way that they look at me because they're like, this is a reincarnate. This is really weird. So my mother, you know, God bless her, you know, tried her best to have father figures in my life. I was never allowed to like to get emotionally connected because all of these men, I knew they weren't my biological father. My last name, uh, I had the last name of a man uh, my mother was with at the time when she was pregnant with me. But I did have a relationship with him because he was pushed out of the situation by the time I was one year old. And I grew up with my stepfather in the house, a product of the 80s. You know, once crack hit, um, he became the dealer. Like my father was a drug dealer. So, so there was always like this lockup where there wasn't any emotional connection. Essentially, my entire I felt like my entire childhood, I was always longing for a connection with an adult male. Mm -hmm. So when I came across my choir director, it was like the first time that I had ever encountered anyone that I saw myself in. First met when I was 15 uh, because my best friend at the time in high school was a musical prodigy and he played the piano for a lot of local churches in Sacramento. And um, this particular church, uh, New Testament Baptist Church of North Island, they had a really phenomenal youth choir. Up until that point, I had never, like I'd sang with people my age, um, but it wasn't at the level that I was singing and, and more so I would be singing with adults. 
so to like find a you know a youth choir with everyone around my age that could sing was like appealing like i yes it was fulfilling it was like i finally felt seen and it's like oh my god it's people like me and you know it was it felt uh, like you know, it was actually cool yeah exactly so i quickly joined the choir and my choir director drew a liking to me. Me not knowing that this actually was a predator, he had a very calculated way of getting his victims. I didn't even know that I was being groomed until the actual abuse happened. Once it happened, I felt like I had to continue along with it in order for it not to get out. What was the first interaction actually with this choir director? I remember my first interaction vividly. First time I went to the church, I went with, like I said, my best friend at the time. I went with his family, so his mother, his sister, and uh, his older sister and older brother. I remember after the service, I was introduced to the choir director. And it's one of those things, I remember how intense the eye contact was mm. when I met him. Like, I, one of those things that I cannot forget, um, and it's it's kind of like a, a reoccurring thing, theme in my life. It's like, usually the people that cause me the most trauma, when I meet them, we have the most intense eye contact. It's kind of weird. It's like they try to stare into your soul. <laughs> um, <laughs> and you said, so he was, so the first interaction is he was staring in deeply into your soul, in a sense, we'll use and after yeah. that transaction, after you met him and they you, you interacted so, with him, when was so your second experience? Second experience was two months after that. So I would say my, the first time I met him was November. Was in a no, like November of my sophomore year, and then the next time, my next interaction I had was actually when I came to sing with the choir. The choir was prepping for their annual concert that they have and i want to say that year was their 25th yeah it it had to be like their 25th year anniversary so like this choir had been around for a long time for quite a long time Um, yeah it was well established and everything that was my second interaction was once i got to the choir because i remember being singled out like to like hey you sing this part and then I sang it, and it was just like, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> and then from there, what I would remember, basically, what what was the grooming process in getting me to, like, the abuse to happen just to speed this up was, um, he just started taking more notice to me and paying more attention to me. Started inviting me to, you know, go sing at other churches or... Uh, would invite me over after service to his place with more of the boys, other boys would go over to his house after, um, after service. No. And I remember that first, oh, go ahead. No, I was going to say, you were how old at this time? time I had turned 16. You had turned 16. And, mm-hmm. you know, typically what happens is when you're around that age, you still are obviously a child and your parents are somewhat or whoever your guardian is it doesn't necessarily have to be your mother and father but whoever your guardian is was normally responsible for ensuring your safety what did the person at the time who was your guardian think about you going over to this choir director's home 
a good question. So a little context about me. I have always been an overachiever, always been a straight A student, highly responsible, um, very mature for my age. At this time in my life, 15, 16, my family actually had stopped going to church. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's why also I was very inclined to get back into the church and so that I could sing. So when this opportunity came, there was no opposition to me going to this church. I'm going going to a church. It's not like I was going, you know, out drinking and smoking. (laughs) I was going to church. But to answer your question, I had got my driver's license right when I turned 16. So literally I turned 16 on Wednesday and by Friday I had my driver's license. I do remember when my mother found out that I was uh, going over to my choir director's house. She was upset. Um, that I, one I didn't tell her and I now know it's because my mother was also a victim of sexual abuse you know of course any parent wants to be protective over their child at the time no abuse had taken place going back to toxic masculinity I think my mother had a view of this man just based off of what she had perceived of him you know based off of his mannerisms because he wasn't the most masculine man um, and then of course choir director that doesn't automatically mean you know <laughs> something but when you would go over his house though when you were there what would you guys talk about is you know this is a a man i'm assuming who was probably in his mid to late 30s right Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you are a 16 year old child over uh, this individual's house were you with other kids or were you solely there just alone when i first started going over there it was with other other teenage boys Mm -hmm. i remember being weirded out the first time i went uh, because one i wasn't used to that particular type of setting, you know, being with all these teenage boys with our choir director, but it was like outside of church. So it wasn't like, it wasn't super churchy. So, so you know, there, there were you know, no girls there. Occasionally there would be girls there. Okay. Um, but for the most part, it would be the boys. I remember the first time where it was just the boys and the choir director started wrestling and roughhousing. In my opinion, it was very handsy. There was a lot of groping and touching of butts and genitalia and stuff like that. And I just was like, this mm. seems very, yeah. I'm, I'm the new one here and everyone's just, you know, acting like this is what normal thing and you know but I remember being thrown off by that because then also I wasn't the one for like rough house because I don't know I just was very at that time I guess I was I was super insecure anytime it came to rough housing like I, I would go into like fight or flight mode for whatever reason so you you didn't um, know how to play nice <laughs> you I didn't, didn't know how to play you would take it very seriously I could get that point correct and so the first Correct. time that you were there by yourself, what did you think when you were invited over to his house and you were there by yourself and there were no other kids? Um, I didn't think anything of it, actually. If I remember correctly, I think it, it was more, I actually was happy that there weren't the other guys there because like I said, I looked up to this person um, and I saw a lot of myself in this person, like this person. You know, he was attractive, he was magnetic, like all of, you know, the women would come up to him after church and be flocking after him. He was successful, he was a uh, a bank manager, educated, you know, loved the Lord, he was a homeowner. He had everything and, going you know, for himself these... from what the outside yeah. would see. I could, I could right. see that. Right, and, and it's like, for me, and at the time, it's like, you know, I was a sophomore, and as soon as high school hit, I was already thinking about, I know I need to get, you know, straight A's and... 
um, you know, eventually I, I became, you know, valedictorian and then, you know, get, go to a great college and then I wanted to be an investment banker so I could make, you know, hella money because I don't come from that. Like I, I was the first person in my family to go off to college. I didn't have any role model and that this man served as a role model for me. So when we had our time alone, it was actually time, it was, it gave me the time to learn more about him. Yeah. I see. I can understand that. I do remember the first time he got me alone was the first time I was assaulted. You're saying the very first time that you went over there is the time that he sexually assaulted you. The first time that I was alone alone, yeah, at his house was the first time that I was assaulted. started off with the wrestling groping happening and it started above my clothes and then it went under my clothes that he had gave me because remember I would go over his house after church mm -hmm. so I'd be you know dressed up in my church clothes and you know he would give me like basketball shorts and t-shirts put on mm -hmm. after so yeah so that the first time I was assaulted was from wrestling he uh, put his hands in my pants and yeah and so after this first time, what did you think? Uh, what did you think that was once that happened to you? A um, mistake. <laughs> yeah. Did you tell your mom? Oh, no, I didn't tell the soul. At first time, I didn't think it was a mistake. I didn't think it happened. Yeah, I... For some reason, I just thought, I was like, no, that didn't happen. We were wrestling and I like made up the rest of what happened because that couldn't have. There's no way. Yeah, I, I don't know. <laughs> Again, because the story's so graphic and, you know, your audience, I don't know. Say whatever it is that you want to say. So, okay. So also while we were wrestling, I noticed that he was getting hard. And when that was happening, also for me as a young man, I, at that time, started noticing noticing that I was having attraction to both sexes. Once I saw him aroused, I also too became aroused. How can, you know, this be a bad thing if you're getting aroused too? Uh, type of thing. So I think in my head, it was easier to think that it did not happen. Mm -hmm. And I told myself that it did not happen. But then that was just the gateway because things then quickly like ramped up from there. And especially with the, the grooming, like we would sit on the phone and talk with each other. Because you remember, I used to live in homecoming at that time. And I had a walk-in closet and I remember I would talk to him because uh, the walk-in closet was in my bathroom so I would be like sitting on the floor in and my walk-in closet. And if people and don't I, know what if people are confused about what homecoming is <laughs> I'll just explain. Not Beyonce. <laughs> <laughs> not Beyonce's uh, homecoming from Coachella but we're referring right. to a uh, residential area located in the Sacramento region. Uh, Sacramento, California, that is. If anyone's from the area, you know what homecoming is. It's a very large, stately housing complex. So continue to go ahead yeah. in case people were confused. <laughs> Phone conversations, it would um, be directed toward um, literal grooming. Basically, like, encourage me to, like, shave my leg completely, you know, from my waist down. Taught me how to clean my behind. Um, like, very graphic and, like, in and now older was like that was very like jail way to like clean out uh, <laughs> yeah so when you were speaking to him and in, in your i'm assuming this happened multiple times and you know uh, 
you didn't have, I'm assuming, a cell phone on your own. Um, and if you did, I'm sure your mother was, I would think as a parent, she would be checking just to make sure who you're talking to and why are you in the closet talking to this person and why is he calling so often? Um, and, you know, that would spark a little light bulb in your head and you say, hmm, this doesn't seem right. And still in yet. Again, this was also um, the early to mid 2000s. Yeah. So I don't think anyone cared. Yeah. <laughs> To be that you know that stringent on my my cell phone bill, and then also too is like I never gave any reason for my mother to think any of that because again like I was so mature and by that point I was very crap so I knew how to hide shit. So now, what would you say to the people who? Because I know there's going to be some questions like, okay, when you were interacting with him and you became aroused as you notice he became aroused what would you say to the people who would say oh well he wanted it he was looking for that because you know there look there are some people out there even though you were a kid there were some people out Mm -hmm. there who would say that that the kid literally wanted it and so he got what he wanted and now he's complaining what do you say to those people so first i would say those people are stupid second i would say i was 16 third i would say the worst type or one of the most common forms of like rape and sexual assault is acquaintance right and so for us it was a power dynamic here is this man who is this leader in this church with the you know well respected up until a certain point had all of this power with you know this church no one's going to believe what happened like if i came forward when it first happened i felt like no one was going to believe me i felt like that was going to ruin my future i had aspirations i had big dreams and hopes and i thought that like coming out would ruin any of that initially did have the strength and you had the wherewithal to come forth and tell your guardian about this what did that conversation go like when you first initially went and, and told? Yes, 2014 was the year I had finally come to terms with my sexuality and had made the conscious decision, because um, I won't call it a coming out, although I did come out to my mother, um, but it wasn't, um, I'm putting air quotes around come out, but um, <laughs> it was just more so, more so letting her know that don't be surprised. <laughs> so I had started like dating and going, and going out. and Dating men, um, dating men. Dating men, yes. I started dating men. I started going to Hollywood. You know, I had a little fun, but I had just moved into my first apartment, like my first solo apartment by myself in North Hollywood. I got my job. I think I got my car by then. So it was just like I had all these things, these material things that was like, you should be like proud and happy for yourself. My mother came um, to see my place and we, and she had, you know, we went to Ikea and had bought a bunch of shit to decorate it. And I remember after we had put the place together and we're sitting on my couch and she asked me, she was like, how do you feel? I feel like I should be happier than I am. And she was like, what do you think would make you happier? I don't know why in that moment, like these two things popped up in my head. A first love had ghosted me and I hadn't heard from him in a couple of years. So I mentioned that situation. And the other one was like, I'm not happy because of my abuse. So when you when you said that so then, and you told her, I, those are the two things that you were obviously feeling very emotional about. And the one mm-hmm. that was probably more important than the other, or the one that was probably more stark startling than the other was when you said you're you're tired of holding basically this trauma uh, that you've experienced. Mm -hmm. And what was her response? Well, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to send an email to the church, let you know, informing them about your abuse? 
because my and and when she said that my in the conversation when I was talking about my abuse I had realized that I was fortunate in the sense where I was abused but I was still able to go live my life and be rather successful when I knew that wasn't the case for other for another victim and so what I didn't explain to you also was while I was still being abused another victim an older victim had came forward mm. to the church basically same thing that happened to me happened to him the church and the choir director were basically able to sweep it under the rug they were able to make it out as if this victim and the choir director their relationship started once he became an adult and that he was a scorned lover trying to get back so i had made the conversation it was like well if they ask me i'll say something but if not i'm like i'm getting the fuck up out of here so like even as like before i graduated high school i had started slowly removing myself from the choir, the, the singing group, the church, I intentionally started working. And that also didn't uh, necessarily stop this man from, doc is a strong word, but I mean, literally that's what it was, is he would show up to my job He because we lived in the same community. Let me ask you, uh, was this the first time that you told your mother about this abuse? Or did you tell her when you were younger, like 17, 18? Was this the first time that you told your mother about the abuse is when you finally got your own place? No. The first time I told my mother was right after I had graduated from college. So basically, there was an argument that ensued in the heat of the argument. Basically, like, you ain't never been through nothing. And like, basically, she tried her best to give me better than the one that she was afforded. Something about her saying that I ain't never been through shit, like, set like you off. triggered me. Mm-hmm. Yes, it set me off, but <laughs> I just blurted out, where were you when I was being sexually abused? And then I hung up the phone. So that was the first time she had heard about that, but had never brought it up again, ever, until I brought it in this conversation three years later. You know what's so uh, interesting about that is last night we had like an emotional breakthrough. That's when I text you early this morning. Let's do this conversation today. We were supposed to do it tomorrow. And the reason I wanted to do it today is because I had a real emotional breakthrough and I very seldomly cry because, you know, I've been through a lot myself. We grew up being warrior children because the adults that should have been there to protect us, they were not. And a lot of times that trauma, we bring that into our adulthood. And then not only do we bring it into our adulthood, but it also starts to infect every single thing that we touch, every relationship that we're in, every type of job that we might go after. It becomes very toxic. How did you work through a lot of this toxic uh, toxicity within your relationship between your mother, other individuals that you were associated with, including the church and the man who sexually assaulted you and sexually abused you for many years? To answer that question, I would just, I'd simply say it was a journey. It took me having to unlearn so much. Toxic masculinity, it's a social construct. It's derived based off of misogyny, homophobia, mm-hmm. you know, greed, and dominance. So it's like the very first thing I remember I was taught as a child is that boys don't cry. They don't show emotion. I was yeah. always called a sissy or, or a punk or a man up. Or um, you know, like or the you know the f word. You, you didn't didn't want to be called no faggot. Yeah. So it's like you you. 
for me, so I learned to perform masculinity from an early age. It's like, so I, you know, I learned that playing sport was a way to perform masculinity. Started off, I played soccer, but then that wasn't seen, you know, masculine enough. And then I did baseball, then that wasn't seen masculine enough. So then I was like, I want to play like black people sports. So, and me being ignorant, like American, American ignorant, thinking like, you know, soccer, football is like the number one global sport and it's played in every country. But like America in the 90s, late 90s, early 2000s, that wasn't masculine. So then, you know, I started playing football and basketball. That's when I started getting a lot of praise from my, my stepfather because he was a, you know, an athlete growing up and he actually was like my coach for a lot of my sport. So it's like having this, having to unlearn all of this toxic masculinity that I, I grew up with. So at what point did you start seeking therapy? So I first sought out therapy um, when I came forward. I was advised by my lawyers. We were needing to build a case. They actually paid for me, uh, or actually I paid for me, to um, go see <laughs> a psychologist and get a diagnosis. Right. To go see a forensic psychologist and get a diagnosis. Because I literally was pretending to be somebody else, essentially. So the next time that I did seek out therapy was after I severed my relationship with my mother. And then that eventually led me into my uh, me taking a mental health leave of absence from work agree also sued the church because they had prior knowledge that they were employing an abuser and did nothing to protect me. Tell us about how this worked itself into the inception of Mountain Mike. I started a hiking business so that I can share how hiking has helped my journey. Mountain Mike was birthed out of the necessity to remove Chris. So mm-hmm. as I was embarking on my criminal and civil trial, my lawyers advised me to get off of social media. To that point, I had amassed a sizable amount of hiking content and had become to be known for my hikes. And, you know, people are often like, yo, next time you go hiking, let me know. I want to go with you. Um, and then you also like take dope photos and you go like, I'm trying to, you know, do it for the gram. So, I had made this conscious decision is like, I, because I'm a millennial and I like really don't want to get off social media. What if I just changed my strategy to like remove my personal life from my social media and just make it focus like all of my social media pages, just be focused on hiking and positivity. Yeah. So that's essentially where Mountain Mike was burst out of. And it actually like the name I got it from a pizza place <laughs> by the same name, but different spelling. Um, but me being a marketer and a branding genius, I was like, no, like what you're going to do for you is you're going to change the mic from like Michael to Mike, like microphone. And what it's going to stand for is finding your voice. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the mic while overcoming insurmountable odds. I like that. What is your mental health like today? As we speak right now, how are you? What space are you in? Oh, that's a great question. Um, the space I am in today is like a really like cool and powerful space. I now have the tools necessary to attack life because of my, you know, my extensive in therapy. And actually, um, I actually took two months off of work last year um, to go to this intensive outpatient, outpatient mental health program where I learned 
all of these tools and skills and then also just with life and, you know, taking things that were happening outside of the program, like podcasts I was listening to that talked about um, attachment theory and me learning what that is and how that explained why it was so traumatic, basically a theory that states like how you bond with your primary caregiver from the age of zero to five will basically predicate like how you interact with all of your interpersonal relationships mm-hmm. throughout life is basically you're reciprocating that same relationship with your parents, with other people. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that's, and that's whatever, true. Yeah. yeah. So it's like based off of whatever style attachment style you form. And I learned during that process that I was, uh, an anxious preoccupied um, attachment style, which was basically like my primary caregiver was in the house, had, would leave for periods of time essentially for work. So I learned at an early age to perform success in order to get attention. So essentially in all of my relationships up until a certain point, I was performing. So once I learned that, that like completely like blew my whole wig back. (laughs) What would you say to people today for those who are listening or those who may know someone that has gone through similar things that you've gone through, whether it's abuse or just, you know, emotional insecurities in general, whether it be about your weight or be issues that you're having with your, your parents or your guardian what would you say to them? What kind of advice would you give them today that could possibly help ease the way that they're thinking about it or help get them through another day? I would essentially say find your voice. And it's not, when I say find your voice, it's not necessarily like speaking up per se, but it's more so finding that inner voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, that it's usually other people call it like it's your gut intuition. Finding that voice. And, and learn to trust it. I like that. And it has been a blast. And once again, this has been the Kenny James Show. If you want to follow him, I'll have his information down at the bottom. If you want, you better follow. <laughs> yes, they will follow you. <laughs> Don't say if. Follow now him. Underscore Mike. <laughs> hey, yo, that will conclude the show for today. But remember, if you like this podcast, y'all, please share it with your friends also like and subscribe there's a lot more where that came from that will be coming this way trust and believe like and subscribe follow me on social media you can catch me on instagram at sir kenny j that's s-i-r-k-e-n-n-y j as in jack hit me up on my website that's kennyjtoday.com until later y'all peace